we don't lower the value of our work by lowering the price of what we agreed to do. We're not going to we're not going to compromise on what our work is worth. It's another Wednesday and another episode of the Skid Steer Nation podcast. As always, I am your host, Ryan Deemer, and we've got an interesting guest today. I can't wait to get you guys introduced to him and hear his story. He's doing over $500,000 in business part time. So if you're intrigued to learn out how he's doing that, stick around. We're going to dig deep into that. Before we introduce Shane, I do want to remind all of you that this podcast is sponsored, actually owned by Skid Steer Nation. Skid Steer Nation is an online store for high-quality, American-made skid steer attachments. We find amazing family-owned manufacturing companies that make really bulletproof, high-quality attachments. We vet them. We interview them. We make sure that the quality and the standards is up to our par so that when you're working in the field, you don't have to worry about breakdowns because time is money, guys. So get the right equipment to do the job right. Head over to skidsteernation.com to find your next skid steer attachment. Shane from Brunswick, Georgia, man. Welcome to the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. We're excited to have you on here. Um, you know, we were talking just a few minutes ago while you were finding a place to park. And uh, I, I'm thoroughly impressed that you can do that kind of a number part time. And I don't want to dig into it yet this moment. But yeah, so you specialize more in like slope, man slope mowing, ponds, land clearing, site prep, but you primarily work with a little bit larger size track property than just a current residential home space, right? Uh, that's our preference. Uh, we are pretty heavy in in the residential clearing space. Uh, and right now I've actually got, uh, you know, we were talking about my, my 210, my 20 ton excavator. I've got it in a backyard on like a quarter acre lot in town. We've got some really old neighborhoods in the Brunswick area. And it had like some 24, 28 inch trees in the backyard that he wanted grubbed. He didn't want them ground. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're, we're digging big stumps in a backyard. So we do, I mean, preferably, yeah, we'd go after five to 25 acre lots. There's been a lot of expansion out in the rural areas, especially south of us. And some of them are old, you know, neighborhoods that they tried to build out, you know, in 06, 07, uh, that just never really took. And so there's been a little bit of a resurgence in that people moving out of cities and trying to get onto some acreage. Um, yeah, we really try to appeal to kind of the homestead crowd. And so, yeah, we'll go in, you know, maybe mulch the whole place out, you know, get it opened up. Say, hey, where do you want to put the house? What trees do you want to keep? So if we go in and underbrush it, it kind of opens up that blank canvas. They can really start to understand what they bought. So, hey, what do you think about putting a pond over here? And maybe that'll get us some fill dirt to do your house pad, shop pad, driveway. So we try to phase it out with them when we are doing those bigger acreage lots like you talked about. Um, but the last uh, probably three jobs we've been on have been, you know, just standard residential lots. So Yeah. I, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm seeing that trend across the country where, sorry, the puppy's getting excited. The mailman must be here. I'm, I feel like if we're seeing that trend where like, my generation, people in their forties are ready to just like get five, 10 miles outside of town. And mm -hmm. they're, they're buying this property and they're wanting to build their retirement home. And if they're anything like me, which I think a lot of customers are, and I, I want to get your opinion on this, they're willing to pay to have it done right the first time because they don't want to mess with it the second time. Yep. Do, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, you know, penny pinchers out there. But yeah, I mean, we've got people coming in from California, from New York, uh, people coming up from Florida and yeah, they're, they're ready to do it right. Do it right. The first time and just get settled. Uh, we're yeah. seeing quite a bit of that. Yeah. I mean, I just remember like the maturation process of me growing up, like in my twenties, when I bought my first business, I didn't want to pay anybody to do any work around the building. I was like, I'll just do it myself. I've got the skills. I don't want to pay for it. And then in my thirties, I wanted to pay for it, but I wanted to pay as little as possible. Like I want the best deal. Right. Mm -hmm. And now in my forties, I'm like, I want it done. Right. And like, I know there's a cost and a value to yeah. having it done. Right. And you know, the $10 painter looks like the $10 painter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. So yeah, the, the $80 an hour skid star guy, skid steer guy looks like the $80 an hour skid steer guy. Uh, you can tell when he's done. Uh, and, and yeah, when we, we show up to, to clean up after him, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, you know, do you have that? Do you have a lot of those guys running around in your area? I know Georgia kind of just got saturated the last three, four years with land clearing companies. Oh, it's heavy. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, they're thick. And that's what kept me away from a skid steer for the longest time. Uh, so I, you know, we talked about earlier, I've got a full-time job, uh, and I've actually transitioned full-time jobs since I started the business. So I looked at the skid steers, looked at skid steer mulching. It was really a popular thing to get into, but it's a production, you know, it's a, it's a production business. If you're not putting down acres, if you're not, you know, um, doing a lot of volume of work, uh, the money's not there. Cause the, yeah, the hourly rate guys are, are, you know, they're scooping all, all the work up. And I like to go to bat for those guys a little bit because a lot of them are bringing smaller equipment. Um, and that's the rate that they can justify, you know? Um, and it, it actually is reasonable. You're kind of getting the product that you paid for when you're paying those guys 80 or a hundred, 120 bucks an hour to bring a smaller skid steer out and mulch. Uh, and so that kept me away from a skid steer for the longest time. And I wanted to kind of find a niche. So I bought a mini excavator with a brush cutter. And that's where I got into the pond mowing, the ditch bank mowing, because it was stuff that I could do, you know, Thursday night, Friday night, maybe over the weekend. And it was kind of a niche job that I could charge a reasonable rate for because nobody else around me had one. Uh, and so that's kind of where we've grown from there is trying to find a niche, explore it, figure out how to be profitable in that niche and then grow into something else. Uh, and then as we got farther into the residential clearing and building house pads, that's when I finally picked up a skid steer. Uh, and I didn't go after a 90 or 100 horse, you know, mulching machine. I bought a 74 horse. It can, it's a high flow machine and it can run a mulcher. Uh, and we can get into backyards because there's a lot of neighborhoods around us. You know, they clear the first third or two thirds of the lot, right? And the back is just left. Yeah, it's got their strippings pile and a root mat and stuff all shoved off in the back. So we do quite a bit of going into those backyards, regrading, mulching all the over, you know, overgrown bushes and stuff in the back and kind of getting people that space back that they've already paid for. Yeah. So then the midsize machine's perfect for that because you're not running it for eight hours and you're not bogging it down with 14 inch trees. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that you found a niche within a niche. Like, you know, everyone thinks of land clearing and mulching as the niche. And it's really not. Like, that's just the, the subgroup of excavation. And then, like, the niching down is we're getting into, like, hey, we're going to do slope mowings on ponds, embankments, uh, ditches. Like, that's niching down into, your, into, into a, a specialty. And I love that you took Absolutely. it that one step further and said, hey, let's get into a unique niche of land clearing that we can develop a name for, get a presence in our area, have minimal competition, and then expand our offering and services as we grow that kind of encompass that. Yep. I think too many guys I talk to are like, oh yeah, I want to do land clearing. And I'm like, what aspect of it? And they look at you like, what do you mean? And I'm like, that's like saying I'm going to study math. Like you doing algebra, calculus, multiplication. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot. To it. I just, you know, you hear so many people talk about land clearing and all they're doing is mulching it's like hey man yeah. if we're being honest it's really not land clearing it's heavy duty landscaping is what you're doing yeah and and as a consumer if you put yourself in the shoes of your customers when they hear land clearing they're seeing the finished product in their head of what they want their property to look like not the first two-thirds chopped with a pile in the back rough grade everywhere you know but that's what land clearing is that these guys are out doing with their hourly rate on the weekends and all that. And I think it's, it's tough for you guys like you, cause you've got to pause and educate your customer on all of the steps of the project to get to their desired result and make them understand that land clearing is just one phase and not the completion. Definitely. Yeah. I, I like to start, you know, like I said, we do like to start a lot of our clearing jobs with mulching and underbrushing uh, just to get everything out of the way. But as soon as I talk to a customer, I like to ask them what their vision is for the property. You know, hey, you know, assuming we're doing a house on your five, six, eight, ten acre piece, you know, where does the house need to go? Do you want trees in the front yard? Do you not? Do you want 
Augusta National grass front to back, or do you want it kind of rough and natural looking and just have a reasonable size yard for the kids to play in and then the rest of it be kind of raw? Um, so, yeah, really drilling down onto what their expectations are from the front end. Yeah, it helps you get them a better product the first time. Yeah, those pre-qualifying questions, I mean, that's the difference between a great company and a good company, in my opinion. Like thoroughly understanding the exact needs and desires of the customers. Is that something you Absolutely. had to teach yourself? Or did you learn that skill from the other jobs you've had in the past? Or like, how, how did your process go to get really good at drilling down on that? Um, I mean, mostly it was just figuring out what I was capable of doing and making sure that that was going to be what they wanted, right? And then having a few jobs where, you know, we get done and they're like, well, no, I, I wanted it smooth and level all the way up to the road. It's like, all right, well, I can do that, but that's not really what I was getting from you the first time. So, yeah, I mean, it's a learned a learned behavior, right? And a lot of it is just being able to ask the customer the right questions or phrase it to them the right way. Like you said, educating the customer on what product it is that they they actually want at the end of the you know, end of the day. Yeah, and and I I have a feeling just from the way you approach this that you're able to look at the conversation you had with the customer and assess where you made mistakes or didn't ask the right questions to get the answers to do the job right. Because I hear so many guys always be like, oh, that customer just didn't know what he wanted. He was an idiot. And I'm always like, you're the professional. Obviously, the questions yeah. you asked weren't right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm a big, big Jocko fan, uh, big extreme, extreme ownership. Leader, extreme ownership, Shane. Hell yeah. Um, I mean, I I certainly don't don't live up all the time, but you know, if something goes wrong in the business, something goes wrong with my guys, I didn't explain it well. All right. I didn't get a good read back from them. Uh it's on me, you know. How did your business change when you adapted that mindset? Um, I had to grab that pretty early on. Um, as soon as I started bringing on some help, which I, I had some buddies that would help me a little bit, you know, um, the timber industry has got a lot of, got a lot of good people in it. And I had some friends that would jump on, you know, jump on a machine with me on a weekend or something. Uh, but when I actually made my first hire and started trying to get them trained up, uh, it was it was apparent pretty quick. I mean, a that I I probably shouldn't have kept him quite as long as I did. Uh, I think I made some mistakes on the front end and didn't establish those expectations very well. But you know how did how did the business change? It's hard to say. Um, well, how about the, how about this then? Because like I find that I also incorporate that extreme ownership mentality where if something doesn't go right, there's something I did in the process that broke it. I find that when I incorporate it in my business, I started incorporating it into my real life too. Like, have you noticed a difference in the relationships with your family, your friends and all that? And like, since you've taken on that extreme ownership mentality. Uh, it definitely gives, yeah, it definitely gives me pause. Um, and yeah, being able to kind of be introspective and say, Hey, um, you know, on the relationship side, yeah, there's a, there's a fight, there's a disagreement. So I did, did my wife intend to do that or did it just happen? And I'm putting, you know, I'm putting blame, I'm assigning, uh, you know, some intent to what happened, you know? So yeah, it's definitely, definitely carries over. Yeah. That's the biggest thing I noticed. Like it definitely improved the communication with our team and our company and it helped me get crystal clear on like who needs that extra level of instructions and who didn't. But I also noticed like dealing with, you know, my partner or the nieces and nephews or my friends that I, I just like, I looked at it like, Hey, everyone's dealing with the best operating system that they have in their mind. And nobody's got the intent to do wrong or harmful things. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's like my stress level in certain situations is substantially lower than it was two, three years ago, because it's like, they didn't mean to do it. Like it's not their fault. What did I not, what did I not say to her to make her understand that I wasn't letting the dog out at eight o'clock at night? You know I mean? As an example, yeah. it's, yeah. So I, it's, I'm a big fan of like mindset because it, it not only helps you with your business, but I find that it, it helps you mentally with your personal life too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I try to have those conversations with the guys, you know, they'll get, they'll 
get upset because something's not going well. And I had a had a situation a couple months ago. We were on a job uh, that we were really kind of learning as we went, uh, doing some new stuff, doing some drain work, um, you know, big reinforced concrete pipes, setting manholes, and really uh, learning learned a lot. It was stressful for the guys, and there was a lot of backstabbing, you know. And it's tough with the full time job because I can't. I mean, I, I really can't be there during the day. Uh, very rarely, unless I have a logging crew that's working right there close to them and I can kind of pop in, pop out. And we moved all of our crews kind of up country because we were having some rain events. And that obviously was complicating the the storm drain work too, right? We're, we're fighting groundwater uh, that we were like, you know, water table three foot below grade and we're setting eight foot tall boxes. Um, so it was, uh, it was a learning curve, figuring out how to dewater all that stuff. And just the tension and the blame game. And again, I'm looking at where did I not provide clear direction? Because the, the tension always starts when something goes wrong, right? right? And they're trying to figure out why it went wrong, who didn't do the math right, um, whatever it may be. And so I figured out, it's like, hey, whatever we're going to be doing that day, I need to be up the night before, mapping it out, drawing it out. Hey, whatever you're transit is set to minus 3.25 and even stuff just as simple as you know having like a little chart or doing a demonstration a little learning exercise on how to convert from feet and inches to feet and tents um and it was just stuff i was dropping the ball on and i i figured it out eventually right but uh it would have made everything go a lot go a lot smoother on the front end so yeah. And you sound like me in the aspect that the lessons we learn aren't from the things we read or the things people teach us, but from the mistakes we make actually doing. Yeah. Yeah. From beating my head against the wall. Um, yeah. It's yeah. That's the school of hard knocks always wins. I don't care. I'll, I'll take it over Harvard. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. So let's talk about your full-time job, man. Like, so you've got a pretty, demanding role like you work with the timber industry there's 60 some thousand acres you guys manage and mill and like you're overseeing quite a few areas of that like how how many hours a week are you working for that company uh it just depends so like planting season i'm probably putting in 65 plus hours a week when we're planting or fertilizing there's certainly some times where it's a lot more manageable on on both ends so kind of the big picture the company i work for uh, it's small private private family owned sawmill um which they're still putting out it's a single shift mill but run rate per hour if they were if they were double shifting it uh they'd be on par with any other mill in the southeast uh, as far as their throughput goes and then yeah the family in whatever holding companies, yeah, it's 60 plus thousand acres that we help look after and manage, do the site prep on. Uh, yeah, we're, like I said, in the middle of planting season right now. So we're putting pine trees back in the ground. Uh, pretty soon we'll be fertilizing. Uh, yeah, we'll be checking up on, you know, spraying crews, doing uh, weed control around and underneath the pine trees at some point. Uh, and then looking after uh, four to, we've had up to eight at one point. Uh, contract logging crews on us that we're out buying wood for as well so it's not just cutting on the company land but we're out trying to buy wood you know on the stump we're trying to buy stumpage is what we call it uh from other landowners whether it's private you know small small acreage 50 100 acre tracks from people uh or if it's trying to work out some kind of deal where we're cutting wood for a big um you know, rainier warehouser um, I don't know. Plum Creek used to be pretty heavy up in your area of the world. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I'm not. Um, but, you know, whoever it may be, uh, in institutional landowner, uh, like a lot of your life insurance companies own as part of their portfolio, own quite a bit of timberland. So we're buying wood, cutting wood, uh, supervising a, a pretty wide assortment of contractors. And then also buying wood from other people directly into the sawmill. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I stay stay pretty busy on that end. 
Yeah, it sounds like it. And I don't know about you, but like as you were talking about that company, like I was hearing like a lot of little lessons in there. Like here's a company that they want to cut wood, make, you know, board foot, two by fours, two by twelves, whatever it is. There's a reason that they have to manage property, plant trees, fertilize, grade. Like there was something in that process where they couldn't get wood to that mill and they had to adapt. I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can be it can be tough. We're in a market down here in southeast Georgia uh, and you know northeast Florida where the pulp mills really control the pace of the market. And, you know, obviously we want a reasonably high quality tree to make boards out of. Right. Yeah. It's got to be a decent size, 10, 12, 14 inch tree, um, you know, pretty straight, not a lot of knots on it. And we call it chip and saw because we're going to chip the sides off of it and then saw the boards out of the center, basically. And as soon as it gets wet or the pulp mills decide that they want it, that nice high quality tree, it's getting debarked and run through a chipper uh, and they can afford to pay it. And it's the easy button for them to say, hey, we will buy everything on this track of land that will fit into our pulp mill. Go bring it to us. Yeah. Uh, and they've got the pocketbook to do it. So, yeah, that's one of the reasons that, you know, this company has remained uh, somewhat vertically integrated. Yeah, we don't have the iron in the woods anymore. Now, I don't know, you know historically if they ever did. You know, uh, Georgia Pacific, the timber company, kind of back in the day, they actually had, you know, from stump to finished product, they were completely vertically integrated. They had company logging crews, company road maintenance crews, you know, all the civil cultural, which is just kind of the the inputs of growing the tree, right? The site prep, the planning, any fertilizing you might do, uh, herbaceous weed control, uh, any of that stuff. Some of those companies back in the day were top to bottom integrated all the way through and you know going back to what you said yeah they had to control that supply uh going into their production facilities so yeah because i'm going to get the owners of your the company you work for like if they wouldn't have adapted to find a way to either lease property or partner with companies or buy their own property because of the pulp mills they'd probably be out of business and they could blame it on the pulp mills stealing all the wood there's nothing for us to mill or they can adapt and say all right, we'll go. We'll go find and manage our own fleet of trees that we can mill for a profit. That's right. Yep. And that's yeah, the last I mean, thing in all business, right? Oh yeah. Yep. I mean, like if you're doing land clearing and you're like, oh, there's a million competitors out here doing the same thing I am. How do you how do you differentiate? How do you how yeah. do you offer a better product, a different solution? Control your own destiny. So, what a great lesson. So. So you're working 60, 70 hours a week, certain times of the year, peak season. Like right now, you just told me that you actually are doing quality control on planting. And as a, I thought you were joking with me, but you were dead serious when you said you have to make sure the green side of the tree is pointed north. Yeah. 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 So we got to every now and then, which we've got pretty good crews, uh, but it's not uncommon to be going through. They get in a hurry and they're hand planting them, which is usually a little more consistent, a little more accurate when they're hand planting it when yeah, I said uh, some people do some machine planting. So there's a guy riding in an attachment behind a tractor and as they pull it through, it's got a big wheel that spins around and he's laying trees into it and it's sticking them in the ground, you know, on a, a spacing determined by the size of the wheel. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not uncommon, especially in the machine planting to walk down and somebody got confused and yeah, the green side of the tree is sticking down in the dirt and the roots are sticking up in the air. Uh, it, it does happen, but it's mostly the spacing that we look at. And as a, as a sawmill, we tend to spread our trees out a little farther, give them a little more room to grow over time. Some of your bigger institutional landowners, they're packing them in. And especially with our proximity to the pulp mills, they stack them deep and they cut them young and they start over again. Because yeah. that tree is never putting on mass like it is in the first seven or eight years of its life. Yeah. But I mean, I just look at this going, man, your job's obviously pretty demanding and hands-on and yet you still manage to own a business, oversee a crew and rake in over a half a million dollars in top line revenue for your own business on top of that. Am I, is that it's been a challenge. Uh, it's been a challenging year and we've, yeah, you know, we've had some good projects that we stayed on for a long time. What do it's you think the keys to your success were? Oh, it's got to be hiring, um, hiring and training. And I've, 
you know, I've gone through some guys, come back to some guys, but yeah, bring in, bringing in help and people that you can trust and then people that you can partner with, which is kind of my preferred method. Um, we got introduced through my friend, David Mann, Mann's tractor and fence in yeah, Waverly, did, Georgia. I just interviewed just David a few weeks ago. Awesome. Yeah. David's a great guy. We talk probably, probably every day, which I've been a little heavier on the, the land clearing side. He kind of got into the mulching uh, as kind of an upsell on his fencing. Yeah. And he's doing some land clearing, you know, getting into some some other niche work. And we try to coordinate, hey, this is the piece of equipment I'm looking at. Okay, well, I was looking at this, but maybe I'll go look at a dozer instead. And so we try not to step on each other's toes. We try to work together wherever we can. And so I've got another guy. So I started all this all this stuff up in Glenville. Uh, about two hours away from where I live now. And then I moved down when I started working for this timber company and kind of got reestablished. I met some builders. Um, it's actually, you know, my, my best friend, the guy he bought the house from, bought his house from, got in with him because he's a builder. Uh, and he kind of got me started in the Brunswick market and just been trying to, you know, get a foothold in it. So with but your yeah, hiring, have you have you noticed that you ask better interview questions or that you notice things about people differently than you did at the beginning? Um, I noticed things earlier on. I don't know that necessarily in the interview phase that I'm, I'm really weeding a lot of people out. Okay. Um, I don't do a lot of hiring. I try to run pretty lean. Um, and I've got a couple guys that they kind of come and go. One of them is a boiler maker. Uh, so if there's a shutdown, he's gone. He's going to Maine or Vermont or wherever um, in welding and pipe fitting, you know, whatever he does when he's on the road. And then I pretty consistently have some have some young guys, 20, 22, 23. And I just I don't know. I'm trying to get trying to get some older guys around me that have a little more uh, patience, have a little more life experience. Uh, they're a little easier on the equipment. Uh, so that's kind of the direction I'm trying to go right now. I've got I've got one new guy. He started with me a couple months ago, and I you know I try not to air it out too much. But he was with a logging company that works for me at the timber business. Yep. Um, and then he parted ways with them, and after he parted ways with them, we were talking. He's like, "Yeah, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be doing, but yeah, I'm just kind of hanging out right now." I was like, "Well, do you want to you want to get on an excavator?" He's like. Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, so he showed up, you know, grown man with a, his own truck and tools and fuel tank. And he just jumped right in and started, started going. Um, so that's been a nice, been a nice, uh, nice fit. I don't know how long he'll stay. Uh, you know, he may want to pursue some other venture, but for the time being, it's, it's working out well. Well, if you keep him slightly challenged, well compensated and min minimal headaches, it'll make it hard yep. for him to leave. That's right. And I find the headaches yeah, are the more important thing. Yeah. Little stuff like just letting him drive, letting him drive a truck home at the end of the day. It saves him some gas money, saves him some wear and tear on his truck. His wife can kind of go and do with his truck during the day because it's like a family truck that they all share. Uh, they're into horses and stuff like that. So it letting him that you drive trust a truck them too. Oh yeah. And, and I have no reason not to, um, right. he takes better care of the trucks than I do. He's OCD about his trucks and he's just a quality guy. Um, so if a truck goes home with him, it comes back cleaner than when it got to his house. And that goes a long way for me. Yeah. But I would guarantee you, you working at night to outline and, and to coach and train and organize the project sits well in his head saying, man, I've worked for places before where every day it was just a fire drill. And it's not enjoyable. And at least here, we might run into some snafus because that's what, you know, you're dealing with the property. It's going to happen. But at least we have an organized plan to start the day. And if we have to pivot, we pivot. Yeah. And he was definitely getting a lot of that fire <laughs> drill when we first started until we started getting dialed in on what what it was that he needed to be able to follow. Yeah, I, I kind of threw him to the wolves, honestly, from the, yeah. the get-go on that one. He kind of jumped into it. And when I hired him, I was really expecting that he was going to, because of his previous experience, kind of take over and lead. 
And I didn't account for the fact that he was making a huge pivot in his life and it was too much at once. Um, yeah. And I was asking, asking too much of him. Uh, so when we kind of backed it off a little bit and redirected on the, you know, the structure, it has definitely helped. And we're still a fire drill right now, uh, especially this time of year. The work is just kind of, hey, you know, uh, end of January, beginning of February, we want to. <laughs> and so right now we're just kind of doing whatever. Uh, we're picking up little one or two day residential jobs, waiting on the next, you know, bigger, bigger clearing job to get started right now. So we're yeah. kind of piddling around my place, uh, bought a couple acres outside of town like everybody else. Uh, and so we're kind of cleaning that up and uh, hopefully building a shop out there at some point um, whenever the whenever the cash flow is looking right for it. Nice. How much of the uh, like the slope mulching and mowing are you doing? in comparison to the rest of the projects now? Uh, that niche work is pretty minimal. Okay. Um, and I knew, I knew that from the front end and it was fine. You know, I had, I had my cost, especially when it was just me, I had my cost dialed in. I knew what I wanted to make, needed to make. Yeah. I had a good W2 check coming in and I wanted to have the equipment and be building some equity in it and building the business up. Yeah, I invested a lot on the front end in the business uh, just to kind of get it all off the ground. Um, but the slope mowing, slope mulching is pretty minimal at this point. We've got a few recurring jobs that we do maintenance on two or three times a year. And other than that, we just kind of use it in special situations on the clearing jobs. Like, hey, we've got a wet drain running through, but it's kind of one off. Yeah. Um, you know, most of that, that 60G keeps a bucket or a ripper strapped to it most of the time and then you know the mulching head and the brush cutter yeah we'll bring one along if we think we might need it but for the most part that's uh we're not doing a lot of a lot of that slope mowing anymore right so what's the core of your business i know we talk about land clearing and all that but i mean you're doing more than just mulching you you're wanting to do the site development the pond development start to finish is there enough of that in your area to make that your core service or do you still have to do a variety of other tasks on a daily basis uh, there's enough right now to to be doing the residential lots, building house pads. Uh, there's plenty of that going on right now. Sorry about nice. that. We got calls beeping in behind you. Um, yeah, not a worry. But yeah, yeah I can tell every, your your screen flashes black every time you're getting a call, so I can tell you're 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 busy today. Uh, every every day. Yeah, my phone starts ringing about six thirty most days. It usually tapers off by six or so. There might be a few stragglers coming in after that, but yeah, yeah, we stay we stay pretty busy. Especially, like I said, I keep coming back to the tree planting season, but it's a lot of hands on making sure you know all the boxes of seedlings are where they need to be for the crew to come plant them and stuff like that. Because mm -hmm. uh, we're spread out pretty far uh, away from where we concentrate all the seedlings at, where we store them at. Yeah. So, I mean, you work full time, your business is another example of like, I call them the COVID business babies. Mm -hmm. We were all, yep. we were all bored in 2020, figuring out what we could do with our time. Cause drinking, eating pizza only goes so far. You started a business in 2020, then you move and relocate and you almost got to start over with like a presence. Like how, how do you, I know you said you talked to a few contractors, but like, what's the core way that you find work or stay busy for your company? Uh, it's primarily word of mouth, uh, and I've got two or three main builders that we work for, and then I've got pretty good relationships, like I said, with David, and I was coming around earlier to another sub that runs very heavy with us, uh, met him through that same builder, that's where I was going with it, uh, and that's what I really prefer doing is building up subs, building up other businesses that we can partner with and work with. I mean, A, it reduces my risk right? I'm not out uh, buying equipment and having people on payroll that I have to worry about keeping busy. Uh, and it just opens up doors because we know more people, we have more connections. So between, you know, Kyler, which is the other sub that, that works with us a lot, David, uh, and then a few other guys in the area, yeah, we kind of push work towards each other if it's, you know, better suited for somebody's machine or better suited for somebody's geography uh, or their schedule or whatever it may be. 
we kind of push work towards each other. Kyler and I book a lot of work together. We'll go look at it and we'll bid it under one company or the other and then sub the other guy in with us essentially, or we'll split a job. We do quite a bit of that. Uh, We'll book a job, we'll pull our overhead out and then split it. So I'm hearing more and more from guys about this networking with other contractors and partnering and working together and collaborating instead of fighting for customers and then fighting against your competitors. And it seems that everyone has a little bit less stress and they're all very happy with the compensation and the amount of work that they receive back and forth. And and it just, I feel like networking within the industry is kind of reviving back into a need for business owners. No, you have to. Um, Now, granted, I've gotten some bad jobs from other guys. I've gotten stuff pushed off on me that they didn't want, but I always, you know, kind of pride myself on finding creative solutions. And I know I've heard a bunch of other guests on your podcast using the same, the same term, right? Creative solutions. But I mean, it's true. If you can figure out a solution to somebody's problem, you can get compensated for it, right? Or if you can find a creative way to get the job done, like on these, you know, bigger acreage, uh, residential lots, you know, five, six, seven acres. We do a lot of rolling off that root mat and the strippings and windrowing that topsoil somewhere on the property because we've got room to do it. And then during the building process, it can all be sitting there kind of composting down. And when it's all done, we can roll it back out, you know, mix it up, bury it, whatever, out in the yard and really cut down on the haul off. And that goes a long way with people's budget. You know, the haul off is, is ridiculous, especially when you're hauling dirt and you're keeping good organics on people's sites. So they're going to grow better grass when it's all said and done. Yeah. Um, I just saw, a little I stuff just, like that. Yeah. I just saw a post on Facebook the other day. The guy was talking about, he quoted this project. I don't know if it was a pond or I don't remember the exact specifics of it, but it was like a $44,000 quote. And in the, in the post, he was like, I've already ate half the budget just hauling off material and we're not even halfway done. Yeah. Yeah, like, the haul off will kill you. Uh, and, and the and burning, but that's a that's a cost that a homeowner has no concept of. No, zero. I mean, yeah. not even a little bit. It doesn't even cross their mind that you got to haul it off and it costs that much money. Mm-hmm. And then you know you're going to haul it off, and then at some point down the road, you're going to want to bring material back in to build the site up. You know, because you're going to have some drainage problems, or you're going to need need a little more fill somewhere. Yeah. Uh, or you're going to bring topsoil in to help your yard grow better. It's like, hey, you know, if we compost down all your root mat and topsoil, spread it back out, let me run the Harley rake across it, we'll save you all that sod money right there and just seed in what we Harley raked, and you'll have a nice stand of grass going. Um, so, yeah, just little, little efficiencies, uh, and they go a long way towards helping the customer, helping the homeowner feel like you've got their budget in mind, got their best interest in mind. Yeah. And, and cause like Shane, I think at the end of the day, like you having to strip that all over and windrow it, let it compost and then roll it back out. Like that's an extra step for your company. Like it's not easier for your company to do it that way, but it's easier for the customer to do that. So it's a customer centric focus. And I think a lot of landowner companies, like they're trying to do it the easiest way for them and still get the best result for the customer. That's where you end up with, you know, like I said, we do a lot of these going back into neighborhoods and they've peeled back the the first two thirds of the property and pushed everything into the back. It's like, hey, let me roll that back out, mulch it, clean everything up, and you'll have the rest of your yard back. So we kind of do it retroactively for other people. And those builders, you know, whoever did the site work on those neighborhoods, that's what they were doing was trying to find the fastest, cheapest way. It's hey, drop the bulldozer do these first 12 houses and push everything to the back in a big strip and spile. And you get drainage problems, you know, you get all kinds of issues and then oh, you're yeah. sacrificing property that somebody's paying taxes on. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think every niche that anyone's ever in and like you're doing a great job from what I hear, but finding a way to differentiate and provide a better value to the customer. Business is not very hard at the end of the day. Communicate, provide value, over-provide value, and yeah. char- charge them money. I mean, it's literally that simple. Yeah, 
yeah, find out what they need. Tell them how much it's going to cost to get what they need or want. Uh, and if you can come to an agreement, move forward. Uh, if not, you know, maybe try to find a compromise. What I tell, because I I've tried different ways of letting the guys go out and bid jobs or at least go scout them. Because with my schedule, I can't always get there when the customer wants to meet. And I've even let the guys, especially Kyler, you know, my sub, I've let him negotiate quite a bit of work when he was starting out. He didn't have any background in land clearing. Uh, he was a drywall contractor. Uh, and he saw what I was doing and wanted, you know, wanted to get into it. So I, you know, brought him under my wing, uh, brought him in. Uh, and he's, you know, he's off sailing now. He's doing, doing great. But it's like, hey, if the price is an issue, we don't lower the value of our work by lowering the price of what we agreed to do, right? We're not gonna we're not gonna compromise on what our work is worth. Said find something in there that they can do without to bring the price down to their budget. So hey, maybe we don't haul off all the sticks and limbs. Yeah, maybe we pile them in the backyard or we mulch them and spread them out, you know, or something, right. something like that. You know, find some something they can compromise on to get the price point down to where we can, you know, we can go out and do it and everybody can can be happy. Everybody can win. Uh, but we're not going to lower the value of our product. I love that, man. And and I think that's, yeah, that's fantastic. It's like, you have to have your standards. And if you compromise those standards, I feel like if you're willing to compromise your standards, that business owner is probably willing to compromise quality of work, craftsmanship. I mean, everything. Absolutely. So, yep. Yeah. Very good, man. That's good advice. Just like find a creative way to hit budget instead of devaluing the services you provide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to have a good, good book of work, right. To not feel pressured or scared into, you know, devaluing your services just to land the job. And that's something we've tried to try to stick with, you know, uh, it's just kind of been a principle that Kyler and I discussed. So this is a, a boundary we're going to set and we're not, we're not going to negotiate on price. We'll negotiate on scope. Yep. I love that, man. And, and it's, I mean, I think that's a great way to word it. I'm probably going to steal that from you, but like don't negotiate price and negotiate scope. Cause like, that's a great way that an owner can understand, you know, cause like if you say don't negotiate on price, they're like, what do you negotiate on? And now you're, you gave them direction, like negotiate on the scope. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and let's be honest, some of those projects that you're doing, especially when it's like, a forever home, it could probably be phased into multiple phases where phase one hits their budget, gives them what they need today. And then a year from now we can come back and complete phase two at a different budget and finish the project. Absolutely. Yeah. That's where we love going in and, and underbrush and mulching first. I mean, a, it's like a, for me, it's a little credit check on the homeowner. Yeah. Yeah. Say we're going to do a three, four, $5,000 mulching job. We collect on that. I kind of see how quick they are to pay if they balk about that. And then we can move into, you know, a fifteen, twenty thousand dollar clearing job behind it, building the doing the clearing and grubbing, uh, root raking, building up a house pad, doing a driveway. And I like doing that stuff with the lower overhead, like the mulching, right? Before I get into stuff with higher overhead and materials and rock and fabric and dirt and stuff that I'm putting the bill for. Uh, and then, you know, maybe they're going to be slow to pay and my dirt guy is going to get mad at me, you know? Yeah. No, that's good looking out. And, and I like the way that you do that so that you can actually word it as a process to the homeowner. Like doing this allows us to see this, to see the property at the whole, to know exactly where the house goes and all that. And not saying, Hey, we're going to do this, make sure that you and I work well together. And then we'll do the larger mm -hmm. one and yep. hope to got you pay. Like, like sometimes you you just got to change the way you word things and so it's not about you but about the customer absolutely yeah i like to say hey let's go in underbrush it clean it up let's say there's a, a really nice tree and you want to put that in the middle of your front yard yeah we can do that if we stop and mulch everything first right or hey you know maybe we want to shift the house up towards the road because you don't want to spend you know eight thousand dollars on a rock for your driveway or whatever it might be. Uh, so yeah, definitely pitching that, pitching that mulching first has been a, has been a good one for us. That's fantastic, man. Fantastic. 
So what's your plan? Like this business continues to grow. You're going to have a precipice where you got to decide to go full time for yourself or like be a little more hands off and hire more staff. Like what's your vision for yourself moving forward? Yeah, that's uh that's been a hot topic, especially after I tied into that 210, um, tied into that bigger machine. And I've had I've had people at the day job asking me, you know, what my intentions are. You know, I kind of thought, like I mentioned, bringing on that new guy uh, with a lot of leadership experience that, you know, maybe he could kind of take over. He could run things and I could be a little more hands off with it. Uh, and I really just don't know. I mean, I love what I do. Uh, I love what I do on both sides. Um, right now, I've got a little vacation saved up that I have not been using. So I'm taking basically a series of of Wednesdays off uh, the last couple Wednesdays and pretty much through the end of the year, trying to stay caught up on both ends and kind of get the business stabilized again. We got pretty uh, we got pretty strung out coming off a, a commercial job. Uh, down south of us, right up, you know, right about the Florida border, um, and we stayed down there for months. Um, so some of our little residential stuff was falling behind. Some of it got wet. You know, we just had a pretty big rain event over the weekend, uh, and we've had had those, you know, pretty uh, pretty bad intervals. There's David Mann calling me right now. <laughs> um, so all that being said, I don't know where I'm going with it. But like you don't have like a number that says, "Hey, once we hit seven hundred thousand, I'm quitting and we're doing this full time." Like you, you just want to let it naturally occur and just see how you feel and go from there. Yep, yeah, yeah, I'm just kind of feeling it out right now. I certainly don't want to leave. Don't want to leave these guys hanging at my my day job. Uh, they've been very good to me, uh, taking mm-hmm. great care of me. I'm driving driving their truck right now, and so it's been it's been good. Yeah, obviously there's some timidity right about the market. I don't really see it where we're at right now. The book of work that we have right now, we're in a pretty strong spot, but that's always a concern uh, about going in whole hog here. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. Like my, my two cents on this topic is areas like where you're at down in Georgia, you're not going to see it for the work you do because when the market, if it does correct more, you're going to see more people leaving suburban settings getting a little more rural in states that are a little bit better with taxes and cost of living. So like, you know, if you lived in around San Diego and Los Angeles, totally agree with you, but down in Brunswick, Mm -hmm. Georgia, I just don't think you're going to see it. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. I don't, I don't see it really slowing. I've got builders right now that I work with that are doing spec homes. uh, And they're looking at, Hey, if this one, if this one goes well, there's 10 more lots in this neighborhood. I'm going to try to scoop them up, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know, Ryan, which direction I'm wanting to go here. Yeah. I think all the time about who, who could I hire to run this the way I want to run it. And I don't think that person exists or so for what just, I would have to pay them. Just to throw it in the ring. So you're aware of this, but like I have two, two guys here locally in my hometown that, I have very good relationships with, and I introduced the two of them together and they did exactly what you and Tyler are doing. They would bid some jobs together. They'd sub each other's companies out last winter. They actually just merged their two companies into one. And now they're co-owners of one company and they're using mm-hmm. this like one's one's got more strengths in the office and in project management. And the other one's more strengths with employees and job site management. So they're playing off each other's strengths based on this and that, like, not recommending you do it, but I just think it's worth putting the, the hat in the ring to think about it. But like, is there an opportunity for you and Tyler to like work together where you're more management hands off in the field? Just something to think about. I've seen guys have yep. a lot of success with it. Yeah. That's definitely something to, something to consider. I've thought about forming, you know, everybody keeping their own companies. Right. And yeah. then forming a, forming a JV between a few of us. Like a co-op. Uh, Forming a co-op, yeah, whatever yeah. you want to, but forming another entity that, yeah, would have a little more bonding power and have some more, you know, assets and everybody kind of keeping their own, their own stuff back to the side, right? Mm-hmm. Say, this is mine, this is what I brought, and this is what we're going to try to build together. Basically, so turning your individual I'm... companies into rental companies. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I again, creative solutions. 
definitely. Yeah. Like the, the ability for you guys to do larger commercial projects or even government work gets a lot easier with the equipment and manpower of three companies than it does trying to do it on your own. Yeah. And I don't know how that would play, you know, cause I was looking in the same direction you are about our companies just turn into rental companies, but how that would play with the, the bonding power, you know, of taking on the bigger, bigger jobs. Uh, if the company, the JV, whatever it is, didn't actually own the equipment, but that's, that's a direction I've been looking, uh, quitting the day job and doing it full time is a direction mm-hmm. I've been looking, having conversations with the family about conversations with some, some mentors in the business about, uh, and I'm, I'm leaning that way, but I want to make sure I, you know, have everything squared, squared up where I'm coming from. And I, I really am pushing that direction right now, but yeah, just trying to play it out, not push it. I don't think that would be an issue with whether the, the, the LLC or corporation owns the equipment. I mean, people separate assets into LLCs and corporations every day for safety, security, lawsuits, insurance. I mean, as long as they're wholly owned by the owners of the company, I don't think, I don't think you'll have a problem. Yeah. I mean, we had, we had multiple corporations when we owned bars and restaurants. We had one corporation that owned the real estate, one corporation that owned all of the fixings in the building, chairs, tables, lights, stereo equipment. And then you had the operating mm-hmm. LLC. Then we had the operating S corp because if the operating S corp got sued for over serving somebody and they killed somebody on the highway, there was no assets for the insurance company to go after. Cause that operating company owned nothing. Right. Yep. So it's just legality and you have an, you know, umbrella policy that covers all, all the LLCs. It's, there's always a way, always a way. So awesome, man. Well, your phone has been ringing nonstop. I think I feel like I've taken up an hour of your time and I need to let you get back to work. But uh, I can't thank you enough, Shane, for coming on the show, sharing your story. I, I mean, you've obviously got time management and some hustle. Like, I couldn't imagine managing 60 hours a day job and a half a million dollar company. Like, time management. Yeah, time management. It's, it's definitely uh, it's a, it's a struggle for me all the time. I've tried different systems. I've tried, you know, using Google Calendar to keep the guys lined out. I've tried different organizers and notebooks and calendars. And at the end of the day, it's communicating with the guys and letting them set the schedule. So getting them tuned in on what the jobs are um, and what the jobs entail and trying to let them let them run that end and not tell them where to be every day and what time to be there. Uh, so it's a lot of trust with them and turning that stuff over. I haven't talked to my guys. I talked to one of them at like six fifteen this morning, six thirty this morning, uh, and that's it. I've been dealing with tree planters and loggers, and I'm actually I'm late to go cruise a track of timber. I got a bid on uh, Thursday morning, um, so we're trying to do trying to do a little bit of everything and still not give my family the short end of the stick. Uh, yeah, that's the so hard that's part been, right there. Yeah, it's easy to get focused on work and forget everything else in your life. Definitely. So, well, my friend, go look at some trees, man. Thanks for coming on the show, and uh, we really appreciate you. Guys, thanks for listening to the Skid Steer Nation podcast. And if you own a business and you keep coming back here looking for advice on how to structure, manage, time management, take more extreme ownership, and you want to learn more about that, head over to groundbreakinggrowth.com. Groundbreakinggrowth.com is our coaching and consulting division of Skid Steer Nation. We only work with excavation land companies, and we work directly with you. You would talk to me specifically, and we can help you structure your business, give you some guidance in marketing, sales, business structuring, culture, the whole kit and caboodle. If you're interested in learning more and want to speak to me, head over to groundbreakinggrowth.com, fill out the form, and pick a time to talk. So until next week, guys, stay busy, keep your chins up, and make that money.